0: We're happy to share another live episode this week. Yep, this episode was recorded in front of a live audience at last month's ISTE Live Conference in Philadelphia. Quick disclaimer: EdSurge is an independent newsroom that shares a parent organization with ISTE. You can learn more about our ethics policy at edsurge.com. Since we were in Philly, I was able to sit down with a fascinating professor from the University of Pennsylvania, which is right there in town. And as you'll hear, The topic turned out to be very timely in light of the U.S. Supreme Court decision on affirmative action at colleges that was handed down just a couple days after this was recorded. All right, let's get to it. Here is the episode. Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, where every week we look at the future of learning. I'm Jeff Young. I'm an editor and a reporter here at EdSurge. We cover all all levels of education, from pre-K all the way through college and beyond. We are recording this episode in Philadelphia, live in front of an audience. And thank you all for being here. So today we are talking about some big issues of race and class in education. And we're focusing on who gets access to opportunity in America. I'm very excited to have with us today our guest, Camille Charles, a professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Pennsylvania um, here in town at UPenn. Penn. She is author of the new book, Young, Gifted, and Diverse, Origins of the New Black Elite. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I should say my primary appointments are in the School of Arts and Sciences. I'm a sociologist by training, so I'm in sociology and Africana studies.
0: I appreciate you. Yeah, everyone has so many titles, and I probably picked the yeah, one that was the least, did. the most obscure, so... Um, thank you for that. So just on the format, I'm going to talk up here. We're going to, I'm going to pose some questions. We're just going to have a conversation. And we are, though, going to leave, it, uh, leave time for questions. So we are in person. We should take advantage of that. Um, we know um, what it was like to not be in person, so let's take advantage of the fact that we're here <laughs> to actually ask questions and, and have a dialogue. Let me jump in. So in your book, you talk about... the You tell the many stories of... Um, Black college students, who are at you know some of the best American colleges and residential colleges, and you note that their experiences though are often very different from each other. So they're all black students, but they're not that their their stories can be very different. In fact, you know there's for instance you note that there's one student named Andrew. You started one of your chapters talking about who grew up in poverty. Um, neither parent had ever gone to college, so it's a first-gen student, and yet Carl also black and um, it, you know, going to the same college whose family was affluent and whose father was a colonel in the u s Army, um, so their experiences coming in here are very different. What, do you, what does your research tell us about about you know that, that you were struck by about black college students in America at some of the best colleges?
1: Um, so I should say this this book comes out of a project called the National Longitudinal Survey of Freshmen. And we studied a cohort of students who entered college in the fall of 1999. Four-year graduation would have put them at uh, 2003. We interviewed them every year to kind of get a sense not only of their backgrounds, but also their experiences throughout college. So um, so one of the things that came out in the first book, which really, you know, we interviewed white, black, Latino, Asian students. Um, they were all um, permanent residents in the U.S., so there's no international student component to this but one of the big things that we found was that actually the most diverse students across all characteristics were the black students Um, the white and the asian students were quite homogeneous in terms of their experiences their backgrounds their gpas their test scores like you name it they were very similar um Hmm. the um the, the Latino students were diverse certainly in terms of where they came from, their immigrant origins and those kinds of things. But the black students, like, one of the things that we used to say when, when we would give a talk was to say, you know, if, if I'm standing out on Locust Walk, which is the main thoroughfare at Penn, and I see any random black student, I would be hard-pressed to accurately determine their their origins, their class backgrounds... Um, the kind of school they went to the you know what their GPA and test scores were all of those things they are the most difficult to pin down even though the research would tell us that I should assume that any black student that I come across is, from an impoverished background, probably a single parent background, non-home owning parents didn't go to college. We we know the sad story, right? Um, that's they, only about they pulled themselves a, up
0: by their bootstraps. They have literally
1: <laughs> some done this right, but that's really only about a third of the black students in this sample, um, and and so. When we looked at their, you know, whether they were uh, monoracial or mixed race, whether they were third generation or more in the US, um, or immigrant or second generation from Africa or the Caribbean, male versus female, um, you know, their experience of segregation in school and in their neighborhoods growing up, their GPAs, their test scores, their AP courses, private versus public school all of those things, there was more diversity among the black student population than across any of the other groups of students. And so, um, which was something that, you know, I sort of knew intuitively, but as a social scientist, you kind of get sucked in to the training and the history and the direction that it's going. And so, um, one of my sort of non-negotiables for even being a PI on this project was that I wanted to do a book that was just on the black students, and it was because sort of in my heart of hearts I knew that to be true, hmm. in part because of my own experience, but in part because of other black people that I knew in the world. So um, so yes, a big piece of this was to think about that diversity and what it means, but um, But also, you know, we started in earnest on this project kind of during the 2016 presidential campaign season. And, you know, every time one new black Republican emerges, it's like, oh, no, they're, you know, we're losing we're losing blacks as this Democratic kind of voting block. And, um, you know, we've always had conservative blacks among us. That's not anything new. But there was also this, this sort of line of thinking about what does it mean that we have an increasing number of immigrant blacks, and, you know, how do you maintain political solidarity as the black population is becoming more diverse, as if immigrant status was the only way that blacks were becoming more diverse. Um, and... So one of the things I wanted to look at was sort of the trajectory through college for this population of blacks that is anticipated to go out into the world and be those next movers and shakers. And is there uh, is there a a divergence in their political thinking around race, racial identity, um, explanations for black inequality and those kinds of things? And, you know, spoiler alert. They come in a little differently. Um, they come in, you know, immigrants and natives kind of have some different attitudes. Um, but they actually converge during the course of college. And by the time they leave, they all pretty much think the same. And it's not Republican ways of thinking just to put it out there. Yeah.
0: That's so interesting. And, you know, just to just to go back a half a step just to, to make sure people capture this. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that a third maybe are this this kind of popular narrative of black elite black students at, at, at mm-hmm. sort of selective colleges but there are other it seems like you had there were other like a third a third a third of yeah
1: it was so, roughly it so so if you looked at parental education as the kind of that's sort of the most consistent marker of, of class status because it doesn't change over time right your income can go up and down but your educational attainment kind of is what it is. And so we looked at parental educational attainment, and about a third of them had parents where neither one of them had completed a four-year degree, and about a third had parents where at least one of them had completed an undergraduate degree, and then about a third of them had at least one parent who had completed an advanced degree, whether that was an MBA, an MD, a law degree, or a PhD.
0: Very different American stories yes. that are captured in that, yes. that piece of data. Yes. Yeah, that's, um, that's but, so interesting. but
1: also, so even thinking about the income, though, for example. So sure. you still had about, I think it was about 20% of kids whose parents had at least, had no more than an undergraduate degree, still earned less than $50,000 a year in income. So we sort of have this expectation that if you get a four-year degree, you're sort of set. Um, But we know two things, right, about black life in the United States. And I think one is that there is a a greater commitment to community service. And so we are more likely than average to take that college degree and go and be a teacher, right? Something that doesn't necessarily pay a lot of money or to be a social worker um, or to work in a nonprofit. Um, We also know that there is less um, uh, labor market stability, For black people irrespective of their educational attainment and so that also feeds into this so there's this kind of um paradox
0: you've 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 researched a lot about segregation as well and i wonder Mm -hmm. what what do you say what do you think your research says about the the, the status of k-12 education in america about about the the lives they're coming the all of us are coming from but these black students you're looking at particularly
1: so my, my sort of training and, and when I went out into the world as a sociologist, I studied urban inequality sort of broadly speaking, and I was particularly interested in the causes and consequences of racial residential segregation. Um, so, so even though I've been writing about higher ed for the last 20 years, a big thread has always been the impact of racial segregation in neighborhoods and schools. Um, and so uh, we know that con- segregation concentrates poverty. Um, and so, you know, for black people, um, coming out of segregated circumstances means that they're coming out of neighborhoods and schools on average that are experiencing more violence and social disorder on a day to day basis than your average uh, white and Asian student. Because what we found in that first book, again, is that white and Asian students were really kind of similar in coming from. Neighborhoods that were more than 70% white, um, and they were more affluent. Um, blacks and Latinos tended to come from more similar neighborhoods and schools.
0: Coming to these residential colleges. Right. right. Who
1: tended to come from more an experience of more intense segregation um, by race. So... What that meant was that when we looked at exposure to violence and social disorder, for example, in their neighborhoods and schools, over the course of their pre-college lives, um, they were exposed to um, something like 17 times more violence and social disorder on average than your typical white and Asian student. Um, It also tends to mean that, um, as a consequence, because... They might be income middle class, but they are not wealth middle class. Um, They're experiencing these kinds of upheavals in their own families as well. So that even for an affluent black student, they usually have immediate family members who are not affluent and who are reliant on them. And so the other piece that we pay attention to is um, what we call stressful life events. So, you know, in the last 12 months... Has anyone in your immediate family died? Have your parents been out of a job or gotten divorced? Did it, You know, has somebody been the victim of violent crime? Um, all kinds of things that varied from moving to divorce to kind of violent crime to homelessness to um, a sibling who might have a teenage sibling who got pregnant, um, and the black students. Experience on average one stressful life event a year, where the white and Asian students experience on average like one over the course of college. Um, and we're talking again, an immediate family member dying. Um, we're talking unemployment among parents. We're talking uh, drug and alcohol abuse among immediate family members, right? So, so the level of stress is higher, and you're talking about a population of students who are often sending their work-study money home or the refund checks home to help family members. They're concerned about younger siblings. They had been there to help provide support academic support but childcare support and those kinds of things and they're not there anymore and so there's a tension that they're living with that their counterparts are not it's just not part of the equation for them and so i think that's the sort of important way to think about the role that segregation plays not only during their upbringing and and what they're able to do if they have to attend a neighborhood school you know, they might be the best in that neighborhood school, but they've been exposed to more fighting and um, probably earlier sexual activity, um, just, you know, subpar buildings and, and things like that. Um, that and, and the lack of resources around music and arts education or access to various sporting kinds of facilities. Um, and those things make a difference when you then come to these elite, affluent campuses where you're seeing things that, you know, you've never seen before.
0: You talk in the book about culture shock.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: know you work with first-generation students at Penn. Yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about the work the work you do with first-gen students? Sure. And why do you think colleges need to support first-gen students in some, some special way?
1: Um, so I've been at Penn... 25 years now and um, when I got to Penn most of the black students were coming from under resourced communities right Um, what was really interesting was the number of white students who would come and talk to me about how they felt invisible because they were also coming from um, low income backgrounds first gen backgrounds but you know nobody at Penn was thinking about white students in that way because the average white student was definitely not that um, and so it was really interesting to hear white students talk about how they were having to expre- explain to friends why they couldn't go to Aruba for spring break, um, or or why they were working part-time in the bookstore, because, you know, I was hearing conversations among white students where it was like, yeah, you know, I'm going to have to get a job because I spent all the money that my parents gave me for this semester, and their friends were like, dude, just ask them for more, you know, just things that were foreign to... I knew it was out there because I'm an inequality scholar, but to sort of see it around me was was really um, striking. And so over time, though, the composition of the black population has shifted because diversity and the easy way to recruit a diverse class, right, is to look for the black students and the brown students who have this same profile or as close as possible to the same profile as the white and Asian students from the affluent backgrounds. And as immigration has increased, you know, immigrants from Africa are the most well-educated immigrants coming to the United States, period. Um, and so, second-generation African students have not necessarily the highest GPAs. It's funny; one group has high GPAs, another group has high test scores, and you know, another group has more AP. But African immigrants come from the highest-income families among blacks because their parents. Two-thirds of African immigrant students are coming from two-parent households with two advanced degrees in their in their households so their and their parents are like we didn't come here for you to mess around with you know east stroudsburg you're going to the most prestigious university that you can get into and we'll figure out how to pay for it later and and that's what plays out right in the admissions um and so what, I've no- what we've seen over time is that the black student population is more class-diverse. Um, and um, so in my first-gen low-income work, I'm reminding them that we are not accounting for all black students or all brown students because not all black and brown students are first-gen low-income, right? There are things about being on these campuses that are hard For black and brown students that throwing money at is not going to fix and then when I'm wearing my racial inequality hat I'm saying you know don't forget there are white students who are poor and who are the first in their families to go to school and that not all black and brown students are poor and in need of financial support Though more of them actually need support than you're thinking about it because wealth. And they don't have the same setup. They don't have parents and grandparents that they can ask for additional support. Um, so, so I do wear both hats because I think both things are important. Um, and, and I was really moved by the struggle that, you know, the invisibility that white low income students have sometimes on these very elite college campuses i think in ways that might not happen so much at a penn state or a flagship state university that is still highly selective but is more it tends to be more diverse economically anyway
0: no it seems like in both threads a theme of your research is like people don't always understand maybe these maybe colleges don't understand the students they have or they think they understand them, but they're misunderstanding them along race and class in different ways. Right,
1: well, and and again, other categories of difference, right? So the thing about this book was the opportunity to really think intersectionally, that we have multiple identities, and different identities are salient in different circumstances, and sometimes different intersections of identities are more salient in different circumstances. So, you know, there are... um, Two-thirds of, of our respondents are female. So there's a gender difference in the experience on campus. Men have an experience that is very different than women do. Um, men have more dating options, but they're under scrutiny from public safety in ways that the women aren't. Right? The women actually have fewer dating They have the fewest dating options. Um, Asian men... And black women are the least likely to have um, romantic partnerships during college. Um, and uh, and socially, I think that has consequences. So black women were far more depressed um, and, and more likely to be uh, at risk of major depression than men were. So there are gender differences in the experience, right? There are these immigrant and non-immigrant differences. There's the experience of being... Uh, mixed race versus monoracial and their skin tone variations that have implications not just for interacting on a predominantly white campus with the white sort of structures but actually interacting with each other Um, so that there are and then there are the class differences so there are all of these ways that students can be impacted by the campus climate that they're in and we just don't think about all of them nearly enough you know um muslim students on judeo christian campuses um and in a moment of sort of high tension around anti muslim sentiment were you know and and that there are black muslims and non-black muslims and how do we deal with that so the the most important thing for for me individually, and for us as a team, was really to kind of say, there is no one size fits all. There never has been. But it's, it's even more true now than it was, you know, 25 years ago, when we first collected these data. Um, when we thought about 25% of black students on these campuses were immigrant, they think it's about 40% now.
0: So yeah, I mean there is a changing demographics yeah. un- as things are going, and as right. as colleges have invited a broader pool of students than they came. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to open it up for questions in a minute. I, I have plenty more, but I, I do want to make sure I give I live up to that promise of getting the audience involved. So I do before as people are thinking of their question, um, I I am very curious about. You know, the economic mobility that college and especially selective colleges has traditionally given to, you know, and, and I think black students have looked to that just like every, all students. Um, you point out that the college admission scandal recently shows that there are plenty of very affluent white families fighting to get into right. um, places like Penn. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, um, it has been, you know, there's this been a long-standing idea that if you go to a highly selective college, it'll pay off over time, and that's the way to go. That's the way to get opportunity in America. Um, but lately, we are seeing, and I, I think probably a lot of people out there are seeing this too, a kind of a more of, lately in the last few years, like kind of a more of a skepticism around higher ed, about higher ed across a lot of groups. But I feel like, I wonder if sometimes it's getting to... You know, some um, groups that may, not, may be underrepresented in colleges, mm-hmm. um, hearing that colleges, oh, it's you don't need to pay all that, or reluctance to take out debt. And you mentioned in your surveys you found yeah. reluctance to take out debt for college is, is an issue. So, are you are you concerned about this narrative, if you're hearing the two, about a kind of a case against college that feels like it's out there in the culture, and what that might do to um, the diversity of college going?
1: Um, yeah, so actually even in my own house, my, my oldest just graduated from college. But when she was in, I don't know, seventh grade and we could no longer help her with her homework, um, she, I remember my husband saying to her, you know, I don't even care if you go to college. Like, I just want you to be happy. And I was standing across the room and I'm like, I'm sorry. Pardon me. What the fuck are you talking about? And but I didn't say anything because you know us against them. But the next day we were riding Solidarity in a car. Oh, there your parents. Yeah. And she was sitting next to me, and I said, "You know you have to go to college, right?" And she was like, "Oh yeah, I know." That was that was just Dad talking. Like I'm I'm not. Don't worry. Um, you know. I understand where it's coming from, this whole, like, you know, you can live a good life without going to college. I, I get it, because it is expensive. It's it's increasing at a rate that has nothing to do with the real world. Um, and, uh, and student loan debt is a real thing, right? We're still paying my husband's student loan debt. Um, but the truth of the matter is that it doesn't have to be one of the 28 selective schools that we surveyed or that that are it doesn't have to be an ivy or an ivy peer but you do want to go to the best school that you can go to and you can major in what you can still major in whatever you want i don't care you know it it is not true that unless you're in a stem field you can't get a good job out of college. All of the financial firms come and recruit in arts and sciences, and they're actually looking for English majors and history majors people who can have good conversation and think critically and problem-solve. Those skills still matter, right? But it is also true that people who had graduated from these kinds of schools during the Great Recession had an unemployment rate of 4%. So as a buffer from economic hard times, it still matters. Yes, you can get, you know, special. I, I, I think it's great that we're sort of returning to a moment where certain kinds of what we call vocational education is coming back. Because not everybody is built for college, and, and it shouldn't be this thing where this is the only way to, to protect yourself and live a good life. So, the stuff that's happening around software design and development and IT, where you can get a vocational education, I just would like to see it be nonprofit education, right? Because those, those for profit institutions are still kind of iffy. And you do take on a lot more debt. And they are preying on black and brown and low income students. And that is too much debt. I think the other piece, though, is that Kit. Families who don't have a college background assume that they cannot afford the the prestigious places that actually are the cheapest places for them to go because they have the biggest endowments and they can give the the loan-free financial aid. So it's going to be much cheaper for them to go to Princeton or to Penn or to Duke than it is for them to go to Penn State. Because at Penn State, they might have a great package, but it's going to have loans in it. And at Princeton, it's no loan, right? And at Duke, it's no loan. And so what we hope to do also is in the recruiting of high school students, get the word out that those places you think are off the table are actually the best places for you to look because the net price is going to be lower most of the time. And they are trying to be more diverse, And so, you know, I spend time in my role at Penn Fundraising for emergency funds for first-gen low-income students. So all of our highly aided students now get a new laptop their first day on campus. Um, We try to make sure that there are opportunity funds for them to do non-paid or low-paid internships so that they don't have to worry about making money over the summer. Um, You know, what we're trying to do is make sure that because what I said to them a long time ago was that their pen experience should look as much like the children, uh, you know, the Biden grandchildren or the Trump children um, or the, the Huntsman since Huntsman Hall. Right. So we want everybody we want sort of equity in in what that experience looks like. And here are the things that these kids can't ask mom and dad to do for them. Um, and i can't get them i can 't get them a spring break in Aruba, but you know we can work on study abroad or non paid internships, making sure they have uh, appropriate business attire for um, interviewing and access to alumni who might help them get jobs or prepare for the labor market when they 're done.
0: no it 's so interesting, and so yeah, part of that answer it sounds like is outreach to high schools and yeah. places that are, are yes. working with the students that are coming your way. Okay, are there questions in the audience? I'm going to walk out with the microphone because we are going to put this on the podcast. So it's up to you. If you want to share your name, that'd be great, or your affiliation, but it will be on the podcast. So if you don't want to, that's also okay. Oh my god,
2: she's taking her back. Hello. <laughs> my name is Isabel Weil. I'm the Library and Media Specialist at Daring High School in Portland, Maine. Um, Portland, Maine is a pretty small city. It's about 66,000. But we are a refugee resettlement center and have been since the late 90s. So the school I teach at is the most diverse high school north of Boston. Okay. What I'm seeing with my families was that during our year and a half, first where we were remote only and then where we were hybrid, I think this class, this year's graduating class, had the most SEL Mm -hmm. issues. They needed a lot of reassurance, a lot of reminders. I'm wondering if, because nationwide um, COVID hit black, brown, and um, socioeconomically disadvantaged communities at the highest rate, if you're seeing incoming Freshmen now or existing students who have some additional uh, social social emotional needs in their work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, so
1: with current students, I will say there was a lot more anxiety. Um, They were much more likely to be angry at students who were coming to class, you know, sniffling and like um, because more of them had lost people. Right? Um, More of their families were first responders or essential workers who had to keep working. Um, And so they were, you know, so the student is at home with the younger siblings, helping them with their online school, trying to do their own online school, and worried about family members. And so there was a lot of stress and anxiety for those kids um, that you didn't see in the same way, because then at the other end of the spectrum, there were students. Who were turning on their cameras, and they were in on doing virtual school from their parents, you know, second home in Miami. Yeah, and there's or And there's a view of the beach behind them, and it's all yeah. So, so you saw a lot of that, um, which was problematic. And so coming back then socially, it was hard because um, they weren't, you know, the freshmen in particular, they they weren't making friends in the same way. I have a a. a Daughter who just graduated high school. So, her first two years of high school um, actually, she went to a school here where it was a new building and there were construction issues, and they started online, and then there was asbestos in the building, and so they had to move. And then, when they got back, COVID happened and they had to go home and be online. So, my daughter's first two years of high school were a mess they had so many students in her class who were at risk of being super seniors and having to go because they just didn't have the, either they were behind or they just didn't have the energy or, you know, to, to like, get it done. And it was one of these things where everybody seemed to be caught flat-footed um, about what was happening. And I was like, they, they studied at home online in their rooms for two years that's not good for anybody right and so definitely and and there will be ways that they're behind um especially if you think about like math education and coming in and I worry about this at the you know at Penn because we don't force students to take the class that they test into so we get kids who test into um we have uh what is it 130 and one, um, 103 and 104 for calculus. And the students think, oh, well, I can take 104. Even though the placement exam says I'd probably do better in 103. We don't say, no, you should take 103. And it, it was a, a mess before COVID. But coming back from COVID, it's been worse because they're further behind and they don't realize that they're further behind. So, So I think for the next few years... You know, it's it's really going to be problematic and and it is going to be more problematic for some categories of students than for others. But the mental health issue on campus on college campuses right now is is much worse than it was pre-COVID and it was bad then.
0: It was bad then is interesting. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a question? Great.
2: Hi, uh, Hi. my name is Ben Dutson. I'm sorry, I came late, so if this has already been addressed, feel free to ignore it. Uh, But Supreme Court's expected to pass the decision on affirmative action any day now. Can you speak to what you think the impact will be if uh, affirmative action is no longer uh, allowed? We have not Uh, gotten to that.
1: Yeah, we haven't. Um, So I think, I'm from California, um, so, I mean, I know what happens. Um, And so my hunch is that... (sighs) Well, okay, let me start by saying I think that the thing that liberals do badly is preparing for the inevitable. So I think we knew at Baki that someday we were going to be at this point. And we have not thought about how to do things differently in order to maintain diversity. You mean we as higher education
0: in college?
1: Yeah. 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 Somehow we just kept kicking that can, kicking that can, and you know, and and there has long been a discussion about well, if we just focused on socioeconomic status, wouldn't we? And the answer has been no, because it's not one or the other; it's both. And so, um, I think that initially you're going to see a dip. I think that you had a lot of these play a lot of institutions that really touted having these hugely diverse classes this year cuz they knew it was the last time
0: that they could report it this that, way that
1: that we well and that they could oh, do good, admissions they could, they the way admission that they've been way. doing admissions. Got now it. the fallacies are that somehow being able to check that you're black or latino gets you all of this and it doesn't. You get far more um, advantage from being a legacy student, from being, which is ironic because that just means that your parents did something, right? It doesn't have anything to do with your own ability. But 40% of many of these entering classes are legacy kids. And then if those legacy kids apply early decision, like it's even higher. Um, so, one thing that I think will happen, though, and, and I know at my own campus, we've started backing off on our legacy language. Because you can't, you can't eliminate affirmative action and keep legacy. Those things don't make sense.
0: Um, but it, you, that is actually what might happen, though. But you're saying you shouldn't I, I, if, you no. if you care about equity?
1: about If you care about equity, I mean, first of all, if you actually cared about equity, you never would have had legacy. Because legacy is not – it's an advantage, Right so affirmative action is about about addressing disadvantage, but legacy is about promoting an advantage that you didn't even earn so legacy and and the argument for it is that it helps with fundraising though the the research is mixed on that um, I know that at our own institution like we don't um, if you can't if if you don't have the the CV or the resume, like in terms of the likelihood that you will succeed at Penn, like they're not going to let you in because what's certain to keep donors from giving money is flunking your child, their child out (laughs) or, or their child flunking out because you actually have to work pretty hard at these places to flunk out. It's hard to get in, but it really takes work to flunk out. So So, I mean, I think that you're going to see a decline. I think what's really interesting about all of this is that in California, for example, white families really thought that if we eliminated affirmative action, that they were going to benefit, and they didn't. Um, So, one of the things, you know, so... Asian admissions are already far, far exceeding their percentage of the U.S. population, of any of the metro areas where any of these schools are, um, and they are focusing on the traditional things we say we care about. But the other thing that happens is, and COVID actually started undoing this, is that you know, we're less reliant on tests, which is another thing we probably should have backed off on a long time ago. But when you're getting tens of thousands of applications, tests are an easy way to, to filter people out. Um, we are still test optional at Penn, right? My so younger, after
0: COVID, you, you adopted we're, a test we're, optional and now Penn we're is staying,
1: staying t- We went without, we eliminated tests during COVID. We are We are still test optional. I think they're waiting to see what happens with this ruling. Because one of the ways that you... Um, disadvantaged black and brown students is test scores because, and, and test scores really don't say a lot about a student's ability to succeed in college. They say a lot about how well you were trained to take standardized tests. So you eliminate the tests and you focus on grades. Um, you focus on extracurriculars and, and you know, volunteering and, and the kinds of things that we say we actually care about in holistic admissions, and we might be able to get around this, but I think as long as you don't have affirmative action and you rely on test scores, it's a recipe for disaster. So I don't know what will happen, but I think things will get worse before they get better because I don't think we're adequately, I don't think higher ed is adequately prepared for what's coming.
0: So I want to ask, you know, if you had a magic wand and could change The I would even start with the K 12 system. It it seems like this question comes from it's like how students come prepared or not for higher ed. What would you, what would be the first one or two things you would do?
1: Um, well, funny you should ask because I also run a summer program for incoming freshmen that has been around for 36 years, I think, and is was designed for incoming black students, so it's through Africana Studies. Uh, after the Michigan Affirmative Action decisions, we opened it up to any student who wanted to come. But surprise, surprise, 95% of our students are still of African descent. Um, And the idea is, um, you know, the Claude Steele, who sort of understands and sort of identified stereotype threat, talks about the fact that what you want to do is not remediate. You don't want to tell a student we're afraid you can't do this or that you need extra, like you're not quite ready. So we don't bring students in for this week to remediate them. We actually, um, our, our students say that we haze them because what we do, it looks like midterms week. It doesn't have this is to. Their fun, yeah,
0: this is their practice. It doesn't pr- pr- have pr- to okay.
1: because we give them their assignments a month in advance so they have a month to do all the reading they know what their assignments are going to be and they could come in having done all of it out of 80 students i might get seven who have done all the reading and so it looks like midterms week because now you're pulling all-nighters trying to get caught up because you've got class every day and you've got assignments to do they don't get letter grades they get feedback and they get they get the course credit for completing the program So they get feedback that tells them, like, you know, here are some things that you might want to work on with your writing, and here's why you don't turn in a first draft. Um, You know, and, and if you were doing your reading ahead of time, you wouldn't be submitting a first draft because you'd have started earlier. But never do we message for them that they can't do it, right? It's that, look, you got in here because you're qualified to be here, And we just want, we know that this can be inhospitable space. So we want to introduce you to Africana Studies because we think it's beautiful and it's interdisciplinary. So it's a good way to learn to talk across interests and fields and to think critically and to write. Um, And we want you to form community so you have each other's backs when you get here. And when you see somebody stumbling, you know who to tell so that we can help you. Um, and But but it is never when the students start to say, you know, maybe I shouldn't be here. No, we don't really talk. That's, no. That's not what's happening here.
0: And it sounds like you worry about that happening it, in other spaces. No,
1: no, it's right. It's remember when you were a freshman in high school and you had to adjust from middle school and all of a sudden there was more homework and you weren't getting as much help. This is that. But college, the way you studied in middle school didn't help you in high school. And the way you studied in high school isn't going to help you in college. So let's just be about figuring it out. Because otherwise nobody's telling. I mean, and, and all students have this moment. But black students have that special experience of imposter syndrome and stereotype threat where if I do badly, like it's not just me doing badly. It's like all the black students here and it's my family and that's a heavy burden to carry. And so we try to, to sort of start to instill that different way of thinking for them um, as they're coming in to college and nobody has never not completed in 36 years. Everybody comes through, everybody, you know, and, and everybody has their own set of strengths and everybody has things that they could be better at because that's just humans, right? They they establish relationships with each other, with faculty members who they can then draw on um, for letters of recommendation and for moral support and, and all kinds of other things. And so I, that's the thing, I think, is that... Um, the students who do well are the ones who do not think, I have to do well because if I don't, this professor is going to think badly about all of us. And if, if I could do anything and wave a magic wand, it would be to eliminate that whole way of thinking. That when you do badly, it's you. Just like Because, because when you ask white students those questions... When I do badly, I just did badly. It's just me. Um, they're not carrying the weight um, that other students are carrying. And I would say that for black and brown students and for immigrant students, it's not just that sort of broader structural race thing. It's it's their families. My family sacrificed a lot for me to be here. And so they're also carrying that weight. Um, and, and I wish that they could they could take that weight off and just be.
0: Well, uh, this has been amazing. Like I, I think we could keep going, but I know there's a main stage thing going to happen in a few minutes and people probably have to roll. But um, thank you. I just want to really you. thank you for sharing all of this and for your passion on this issue. Thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Every week, we bring you conversations like this one to keep up with all we are doing, please follow the EdSurge Podcast wherever you listen. And check out our EdSurge Podcast newsletter, where you can get the show notes on all the topics that we cover. You can sign up for that newsletter at edsurge.com. Click on the word newsletter. While you're there, you should sign up for other newsletters if you don't already, where you can get all of our EdSurge journalism on the topics we cover. This week's episode was put together by me, Jeff Young. You can find me on Twitter at JRYoung or on the web at JeffYoung.net. Editing help this week by Rebecca Koenig and music by Rowan Jane. We'll be back next week with more on the future of learning. Thank you for listening.